I Read Comics, show number 68. Hi there. That's what my old boss used to say. I still like to make fun of her. So here's an episode where you're going to get two things that are sort of me, but not really. One of them is the audio from the podcasting panel at WonderCon. The video was recorded by the iFanboy guys, and I have embedded that at the iReadComics website. So you can watch it if you want to. But I realized a lot of people either don't have video iPods and can't put it on there or don't want to sit at the computer and watch it because it is about half an hour. So that's a fair chunk of time to be sitting there watching something. So I have done an audio capture and I'm putting it into this episode so you can just hear what we had to say. Now, in reflecting on this, Logan and I talked about it afterwards, and we both agreed that as much fun as it is to do the podcasting panel and getting up there and having people ask you questions about what it's like to do a podcast, it would actually be way more fun at the next con to do a podcast from the con rather than talk about podcasting. Like, let's just do it. So my suggestion, which I'm going to talk about um, to the iFanboy guys, is to say, let's do podcasts, not live, but to record podcasts together or to have a place set up where everybody can just use the same equipment and record different podcasts right there. And it can be in a room and fans can come by. I would love to have people come and be on the show and ask them what they're doing at the con and what kind of fun they're having and what they're buying. Just see what other folks are doing. And if any of the creators have five minutes to come by and say hello and be on the show, that would be great too. We can use it for recording longer interviews with people as I had done rather than doing it on the floor where it's very noisy as you could hear from the interviews we might try to do that. So that's going to be my big push for WonderCon next year is to try to get a podcasting room where we can have stuff going on all the time and record lots of shows and put it out there for you guys to hear because I think that would be way more interesting than listening to us talk about podcasting. Because frankly, I don't like hearing myself talk about what it's like to do a podcast. It's boring. (laughs) Not the podcasting. Talking about it is boring. So there's that. That's what we're going to try and do. But that said, it was a pretty fun panel and well attended. There were a lot of people there, which always surprises me because I think, why the hell do people want to come and look at us and see what we have to say about podcasting? So thanks to everybody who did come and thanks to people who came up and chatted with me either before or afterwards. I really appreciate it. And it's great to see people in person that I've only known through email or through other messages that I get through MySpace and things like that. So thanks, everybody. It was really fun. The next con that I'm going to go to is going to be Ape, which is also going to be in San Francisco. I'm not going to do Comic-Con this summer because, as I've said before, it's just too overwhelming. And unless there's some event that I really want to go to, it's just too expensive and too much effort for not very much return. So no Comic-Con for me, but definitely Ape. So if you're going to be at Ape, which is going to be uh, later this year in San Francisco, let me know and maybe we can meet up and I'll definitely be doing some interviews with the people who are there. The other highlights of WonderCon, which I have written, but still have not posted because I am lazy, just lazy McLazy, was the Iron Man preview, which was totally awesome. And I'm sure you've heard about it from other people, but I thought it was just the best clip. And John Favreau was there, the director. He was talking about how hard it was to make it and all the effort that they'd gone to to get it to look good. Uh, Now they're showing a lot of commercials for it on TV because it's opening in less than a month and it just looks completely and totally awesome. I cannot wait to see it. So Logan and I will be going to see that movie and giving it a review in the car. (laughs) After we get done from watching the movie, we're going to go sit in my car and do the review. So I'll try to get that posted just as soon as we've seen it. But I have high, high hopes for it. Um, They've also been showing commercials on TV for the Speed Racer movie, which I had sort of known about, but then forgotten that it was actually happening. But I'm kind of jazzed about that too. So I think we will have two movie reviews in a row, the Iron Man one and then the Speed Racer one. So that's definitely something to look forward to. So I'm going to turn it over now to the iFanboy recording of this. Um, I will say that if you watch the video of this, there are commercials. I've edited out the commercials for this, but I want to say all hail to the iFanboy guys. You should go over to their site and support them. Uh, If you have time to watch the video portion of it, you'll get to see the commercials, which 
literally support them. I only took it out because they're kind of visual, some of those commercials, and I also didn't feel like it was right to put their advertisements on my show because I'm not getting paid anything for it, and I don't think you guys really need to listen to it. So there you go. So please listen to the panel, and then I'll be back with something that I'm actually going to read to you guys. I'm going to do a little bedtime story for you, and I think you'll enjoy it. Creator. I uh, published the book, The Homeless Channel, last year. I uh, did the writing and art on it. And um, through that process of getting that book out there uh, in the world, I've had the pleasure of uh, working with many of our panelists today. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing from their perspectives, the Internet Peanut Gallery. Um, and uh, I think we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about today. Um, we're going to start today with some introductions. Um, I'm going to ask all the panel members to introduce themselves, uh, say either where they're from or where they're podcasting from, and how long they have been uh, on the air. So we'll start down at the far end. Well, I'm Brian Deamer, and I, uh, I'm one of the many hosts of the Tom Keyspeed podcast. We hail from Reading, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia. And we've been doing the show for in about two weeks, and it'll be exactly three years. So. City in the world, thank you very much. Uh, Representing today for South. Uh, I'll with this. <laughs> uh, we've been broadcasting or podcasting for about two years, and uh, yeah, that's us. We talk about comics. Have you had any surprising interactions with professionals? I think every interaction with professionals is surprising. <laughs> I think I mean I think we're kind of lucky that they talk to us because a lot of the a lot of the pros don't really recognize haven't really oh, they're starting to but in the past couple of years they've just figured out that podcasting is a way to get the word out about their books but it was a little tough getting started trying to explain what you're doing and how and why and stuff like that. So. Well, last summer I think it's about June we had Matt Fraction on the show and of course you know he's one of these guys that a lot of people really like but some people don't get it and that includes myself. And we had him on the show, and after I had read the first couple issues of Casanova, and we were talking about it, and I said, look, man, I'm, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass. I'm going to be honest, and I think that I don't get this book. I don't understand what you're trying to do. The artwork is cool, but it's really confusing. I can't follow the story. I don't get it. And instead of being a prick, he was very honest. He said, oh, no, no, I, I don't intend everyone to get it. This is, I know for a fact that this is going to be totally not people's deal. And he was so cool about it. And then it was only a couple weeks later that uh, I saw him at HeroesCon, and I talked to him personally, and I had thought about it for a couple more weeks. You know, based on your replies, now I think I want to keep reading Casanova, because now I want to figure out how long it's going to take me to get it. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yesterday Robert Kirkman wrote Con's head. That's this. It was a moment. <laughs> um, a while ago, I reviewed Why the Last Man, and I really didn't like it, and I still don't like it. And I thought I gave some pretty good reasons why I personally like it. And 
And a huge flame war broke out over on Brian K. Vaughan's website, his own forum. And people were saying all kinds of nasty things and were attacking me personally. And he shut that thread down and sent me an email apologizing to me for the way his fans had behaved. And I thought that was so classy of him. And he, in his email to me, he said, I respect your opinion. You don't like it. I hope you'll pick up something else that I've done and like it more. And I'm really sorry that people were insulting you. And that's about as good as you can get from a creator. And I totally respect him for doing that. I think it's great. And I have read other things he's liked and liked it more. It was just that long ago. So I thought that was great. That's what a professional is. It's funny, you know, when you mention things like that, you start when you start talking to them, you actually learn like who the really nice guys are. Like Brian Vaughn is one of those people. Like, wow, he's really cool. Like, you want to support his work and you want to like him because of things like that. Um, so you've all been doing it a couple years now, and um, this uh, inspiration or the, the drive to do these podcasts obviously comes out of your enjoying the for the medium, um, and and it's fun. Is there any point? where it has become a grind, or that it starts switching to um, work as opposed to something that you really look forward to doing. Or... Yes. <laughs> yes. It, it, it's, a real, it's a real tough balancing act, and, um, you know, some of you, some of you folks may know that, that our show's going on a little bit of a hiatus right now, and... Yeah. <laughs> Kind of burn out, you know. We, we've all had, you know, moments where it's like, you know, what I'm going to stop reading for a couple weeks or, or a month or so because I'm not really finding the the joy in comics like I should be. But whenever you do a show every week or twice a week, and it starts to turn into this thing where it's like, I have to, I have to get up. Not have to because what we do is fun. But yeah, after after a while, it can turn into a little bit of a grind. And whenever you find yourself not being as positive about this medium that we love and this this hobby that is more than that for us in a lot of ways and, and you find yourself like, do I want to do this tonight? It's like, okay, it's time to time to take, you know, a couple weeks off or a month off and come back at it recharge. So yeah, it can it can be a little bit of a grind. You know, eight hours of editing on a Sunday can be a grind. Stop editing so much. Stop talking so much. <laughs> <laughs> you look for like an hour and you're good. You know, I, I actually, I almost take the opposite tag on that because, you know, I had a day job that sucked. Um, so in comparison, all I kind of need to do is, have, you know, the, the hour a week that we record our audio podcast, that is the best part of my week. And it's totally fun. And I would think that I would be getting sick of it by now. And the hour it takes to set it up is the worst part of your week. <laughs> oh, God. What's wrong this time? You know what? There's certain times where you have to read books in a week and like they're kind of not good. But that's about as bad as it ever gets. It's still fun, and, and for us, what I think makes it worth it is there's there's all this feedback coming constantly, like from the website and emails and stuff like that, and that totally keeps you going. So I guess if you were doing it in a vacuum, I could get totally sick of it. But you know, thanks to the people who are listening and interacting with us, we're a huge part of it. Like that, that really helps. In some weeks, you know, we have a book of the month club, and then we have to review six issues of some first six issues of some series, and we got something else to read, and then there's a book a month encore we have to do, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I can't read the novel I want to read, because I have literally 27 comics that I need to read by next Sunday or something. So that, that can be like, okay, what's the deal? But then, but again, it comes down to the listeners. I mean, we have a lot of listeners who the show is important for, because they, they went to college, and then they moved to Minnesota, and they don't have any comic reading friends, and they're totally isolated, and we're the only connection they have to the medium, and when we get those emails and they say, thank you, thank you, thank you, because you make my job go better and, and, you, and you rekindle my love of comics, then it never gets old, and I'll keep doing it until I'm 80 if they'll keep listening, because if it helps them, uh, then that's worth every ounce of effort we put into it. I mean. um, my podcast is like at the opposite end of the spectrum of comic geeks, because mostly it's just me. Sometimes I won't. And it's really hard to do it when it's just you, because I have a job and I've got other things that I need to do. And I do another podcast that's about Star Trek, and fortunately on the other show, my co-host um, kind of keeps me going to that. But when it's just me, it can be really hard, like you said. you got to sit down and go, all right, what do I want to say about this, and then what did I read, and how can I balance this with the stuff that I liked that I read this week against this piece of crap that I have to find something nice to say about it. And I'm really glad that Logan is on the show as much as he is, because we make plans to do things. Like when we go to do movie reviews, we know we're going to go see the movie, we're going to sit in the car afterwards and talk about it. So that's the impetus for getting it out there. Well, I hear you guys mentioning a lot about the feedback you've been getting. Um, one thing I noticed when I was looking at some of the websites is uh, it seems like things are moving past just the podcast or the, the video cast. 
and there's some community building going on at some of your sites. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that and how that, why you're doing that, and how that uh, interacts with your podcast? Well, when we, you know, when we started, we uh, we had a private forum that just like the guys on the show could because. Before we started doing the podcast, we didn't get together as regularly as we do now, so it was a way for us to keep in touch. And then we started the show, and we said, what do you think about if we open up a forum for everyone? And we said, all right, you know, what the heck. And so we got some people. And then we got some more people. And we kind of said right from the beginning, and Chris, you were there very early on, yeah, yeah. where we said, we're not going to be every other forum on the internet. We're going to be nice. We're going to have no no flaming, none of that stuff. It's, pro- it's prohibited, right? And we're Is that gonna- why I got banned? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then, so as new people joined, they kind of went, wow, this is amazing, it's actually nice. And then they stayed there, and then they kept joining. And then people became friends, and they're PMing each other without being involved with us, and, and then they're getting together and going out together. I mean, Chris, you guys, you know... The, around, com- around comics, what the, uh, one of the initial seeds of that was CGS Chicago. Right, and it was we, so cool. Yeah. I remember seeing those pictures of you guys in the bars. I mean, that was awesome. We're like, these guys are like friends now, only because they met on the forum. We started at Fanboy.com in 2000, um, partially similar to what you guys are doing. We had an email list with our friends, and so we said, you know, I work, my day job is web stuff. It was boring. But um, I said, you know, why don't we turn this list into a website? It would be great. And our friends can talk on this website, very similar to that. So we put up the website, and our friends stopped coming. And, and, and nobody else came. Actually, we had one guy, um, uh, one guy from Florida who just would come and post once a week, and he kept us going literally for five years. Um, and so then, but then we started doing the R Audio podcast in 2005, and then people started coming to the website, and they started staying, and they started commenting, and they started emailing us. I remember the first time people had conversations with themselves that we had nothing to do with. I was like, oh my god, look at you're not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, and then we then we extended that out to the video show, and and we added our forums and. The forums, like Brian said, literally exploded to the point where, like, I can't keep up. Like, I, I mean, like, I'm the tour, like, Connor and Josh, they're way, they're, they're, they kind of post way more than me. But I go and I read, and I'm, like, there literally would be hundreds of posts since I last checked. And, uh, and I find it shocking. And then we start going to conventions and see people, we meet people at parties, people come to these kind of panels, stuff like that. And, and then people meet up with each other, and they're doing the same kind of thing. And it's just, it's amazing to think that, that you're the focal point to do that. And honestly, that's what makes it... You know, when, whenever I get kind of tired of doing it, it's just like, yeah, but I know that you know these few hundred people are waiting for it, and I want to let them down. So yeah. it also works um, both ways in that we've gotten show ideas from people on the website and the forums. Is, why don't you guys do a show on this? And we think, yes, yes. Why don't we do that show? Because we're running out of ideas. <laughs> Contact <laughs> <I-Family.com>. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a, they have a bit of a hand in the shows as well, which which. Which builds the community. We love our forum. We love the, the interaction that we have. But uh, you know, something I think uh, a couple of folks that had mentioned down down the road is, is kind of the friendships that have been developed because of this crazy, silly show about funny books that we do. Um, I talk to Ron probably once a week. I talk to Chris Marshall from Collected Comics Library weekly. Uh, I talk to you know, David Price from Marble Noise and uh, Vince Vince B from the, who I met through the CGS forums and did both both in both. And, I mean, these are guys that I call just to chit chat with. Maybe not about comics, maybe just about general life stuff. There are the listeners that that we've had, folks that I've met for the first time, you know, in the last couple days that have know my voice in the last two years, and I've never met them face to face. And I have all these great friendships that that have been cultivated because of this. And you know, I. Whenever I come to, I'm in San Francisco. I've never, I've never been west of the Rockies. You know how exciting this is for me, and it's because I get together with a group of friends on Friday night and and drink beer and, and talk about comedy. And the first question was about like the relationship with the professionals. That's fun and everything, but I'm I'm much happier. Like, I get much more. I'm friends with Chris and Tom now, and we're friends with Augie. We're friends with. I just not Augie, if you're not listening to Augie the Blues Five Line Podcast, that's the show you need to be listening to every Tuesday. Fantastic. Plug, plug. Plug, plug. pipes and all the podcasts. He's, he, well, he was the first one. He was the first one podcast. And he, he's a columnist for Comic Resources. Um, and he and he's the kind of person that we used to see in San Diego. And actually, we, I mean, uh, we, we were like, oh, there's that Augie guy. And we, you know, like, we, and then we start talking once we start podcasting. And now he, we, he and I email because he also works in computer programming. So we email maybe 10 emails a day. And it's some about comics, but it actually more recently has been more about photography. Big brother. Big brother, brother, yeah. Big brother. (laughs)
So you guys are really putting yourselves out there. And um, I've noticed in the industry, sometimes comic creators, when they uh, go online, they almost form sort of uh, their online persona, <laughs> which may be an exaggerated version of themselves or, you know, yeah, did it up to be a little more entertaining. Uh, how close um, so is... We're going to talk about Rick Remender. <laughs> <laughs> No, but how close uh, to what you present uh, in your podcast is, is that person compared to who you are, I guess, in, when you're not on the air? It's exactly the same. I am just as foul-mouthed and abrasive in real life as I am on the podcast. I'm a woman. <laughs> took a lot of work to get this looking like this is not real. This is a fake beard. No, I mean, I, I mean, I think that we're. I mean, I believe the three of us is. I mean, we we were friends, you know, now, you know, going back to college, and we we just you know record our conversations, so we're fairly real. But I have. <laughs> <laughs> but I, we're all completely transparent. Um, we we tell personal stories, you know, it, when we get not, not on purpose, but if it comes up in a tangent or whatever, you're relating, and all of a sudden, like I was not that long ago, I was telling the horrible my horrible three day or kidney stone ordeal with surgery and everything. You know, I don't have to say that, and if, you know, sometimes it's weird. You don't. <laughs> Anyone that's, you know, obviously had a first podcast, it's, it's a little, into, you know, the mic can be like this big, and so you try and be a radio guy from Chicago. Um, and so it's like, oh, I should say this, or I shouldn't say this, but after you do it for a long enough, it's, it is just conversations that you're having. Hey, going back and listening to uh, some of our podcasts, <clears throat> I've noticed that Two things are different than who I am normally. So, one, I laugh a lot on those podcasts. I don't know why. I like a giggle. That's <laughs> completely like just giggle. Kind of I don't know. Do not giggle. <laughs> I don't think I giggle as much. Um, and second is, I, I think because we go and watch a lot of movies, um, I gay it up <laughs> a lot. <laughs> oh my God, Chris Evans. Hotness, I love that. Yeah. That's true. You don't do that at work. I don't do that at work. I think I keep that a little more. You know, that's my secret identity. What Chris said is really important to know is that um, I think the reason why we are all successful like we are is because we are genuine. And people can sense when you're not being genuine. And one of the things they respond to is that we are being truthful. Whether or not they agree with what we say or what, what, what we like about it, what we not like about it, but they respect the fact that we are giving a true opinion. And that is one of the most most common about things would be get if people to say, you, you know, you guys are genuine. And that really shines through no matter what you do. Did you listen to your own shows? Repeatedly? <laughs> Just my parts? <laughs> you know what? Uh, to be straight. He does. Why did you go and edit out your other guys? A lot of times I'll make a bad joke and I'll get no response from either of them and I'll cut that out because it makes me look bad. <laughs> you know what? I always try to, not every show, but I do try to listen to them because we'll notice the things that we do subconsciously. Like, We'll have words that we say all the time, admittedly, and um, <laughs> ostensibly, ostensibly, and these are certain words. So and awesome are other words. Uh, you know, but you, you do pick up on the things that you're doing, the things that you're not doing right. I think that like a, a sort of level of quality control. So to actually answer the question, uh, yes, you do have. To, I mean, uh, someone's got to edit the show. Someone's got to do show notes. Someone, you know, for the so that's listening. Um, the video show, if anyone's ever video edited, I do the show by heart in your head after you're done editing because you've heard the same phrase 14 times and just want to tweak that one little bit. And I don't want to watch the video shows ever after I finish editing because <laughs> no, I, don't. I can't watch certain things over and over and over. And that's just the nature of video editing. But you have to. You can't just put it out there and go. You have to quality control. You have to make sure it sounds okay and everything works. I'll listen to an episode that I edit. I'll listen to it three times. And, yeah. and, and it, it sounds silly, but you know, I obviously listen to it while, while we're recording it, and that's part of the recording process is just know how conversations flowing, etc. And then whenever I'm doing the edit, you're obviously listening to it again, and then I'll usually try and listen to a clean edit to make sure that everything worked out fine. We just, uh, we simply don't edit. We press start, we press really? stop. I'm and shocked. And <laughs> <laughs> we let it go. I mean, unless, like, we hate you. <laughs> And, and that's been kind of like part of the show, the fact that it's very natural and because we don't edit, we're not, we're not trying to put on a show, we're simply recording what we say. And I think there's a bit of a difference there. And, and so 
I don't re-listen to episodes, but Peter, the producer of the show, he probably listens to each episode five to ten times, over, over some period of time. I mean, because he's, he's the historical nut, and he memorizes everything there could possibly be to know, so he knows show trivia like he knows comic trivia, because he's obsessed with it. And uh, so, but personally, I don't think the other guys, I don't think the other guys, well, maybe Shane, but like, those other guys never listen to ever, any show ever, I don't think. I, I think I only ever listen to it when I'm taking, just doing the regular pass-through editing. And I try to do that with you guys. I just don't want to take out everything. I would like to not edit. I would like to just drop those in, put the music in, and have it be great. But I often find that there's these long pauses where I'm flipping through trying to find the panel that I want to talk about because I'm too stupid to mark the stuff before I, I actually do it. It's like, oh, where's that panel? I have to read it. And, you know, you hear the sound of the pages flipping. Not good radio. So we've been talking a lot about podcasts so far, but we also happen to have uh, very, seven very outspoken industry pundits up here. Uh, and to try to keep things positive, I, I, I'm interested in what you guys think um, the best industry industry trend right now that you're seeing? Because I know, I know we raise our hands about the event comics and how we're all exhausted and so forth, but what do you see that's, that's working right now that, that, that's good for comics in the future? More collected editions. Books in bookstores because they reach a much huger audience than the comic stores ever will. So, you know, original graphic novels, cheap trade paperbacks, all that stuff is very, very important. That's why I think that's the future of comics. Yep. I think the floppies are, days are numbered and it's all going to be books in a bookstore. We get this argument a lot because I'm, I, I, I love single issues. I love, love, love them. And you'll always be able to go back to those long boxes. I know, I will. And, 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 and trust me, and, and trying to coordinate moving across the country from New York to California and move 30 long boxes is no easy feat. But, um, you know, and, but I think Ryan is right. It, what I think is really interesting is we look at success by the number of comics that are sold at single issues in that top 300, but we don't see any reporting on how many Amazon selling or how many how many Market Noble selling or how many Borders are selling, and that's going to be the real key. But I think on top of getting them in the hands of people, if you notice the best trend in the past, since we've been doing this in the past five years, has been a kind of return to quality. Because you can put as much as you want out there, if it's crap, nobody's gonna buy it. And so, like, and so, you know, you can have you can have 17 X titles, and if one of them's worth reading, then they're not. Then the whole line's not worth anything. So it's got to be, you know, really good creators um, writing and drawing and, and making good comics. Uh, Borders is. I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, I think it's Borders that's doing the the comic book store inside a store. Um, Folks, that's the future. It's the LCSs. I love them. I go to my LCS every week. Mark Beatty is a personal friend of mine. He's the owner of my comic shop. I love him like a brother. And his business doesn't have a real bright future to it. And it, it comes down to foot traffic. I'm plain and simple. It comes down to foot traffic. The internet is, is cutting into that. There's a, other entertainment forms are cutting into it. The bookstores are really looking like they're going to be the future of mass market sequential art, whatever you want to say, and it's, and that's, I firmly believe that's where it's going, and it's a good thing. It's, I mean, we all just lived through the music revolution of the late 90s, early 2000s, and it's going to be the exact same thing. You're going to see the mom and pop stores starting to go under, unfortunately, in Britain, which I hate, because there's stores like Isotope here in San Francisco, uh, Meltdown in LA, Rocket Ship in, in Brooklyn, that are just awesome stores, and I want them to live, because I love that, but as soon as the big boxes start getting involved, and you see the small stores go, and then you see the internet cut in, and I know everybody kind of, you know, like the digital comics thing is a hot topic and we don't know whether it's going to play out, but that's, you can't avoid that. It's when you can, when you can get rid of the, because paper is expensive, I'm sure Brian can attest to that. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, I used to do print as well, and it's like Chrissy working print some of it. I mean, it's hard, it's going to get to a point where if the moment somebody figures out how to really read a good comic on the, on the iPhone, you're going to watch it explode. So. I think to third pair more, what he said, what he said, the other thing that goes along with that is that I think that it hasn't caught on to a huge, because most comics are still superhero comics, but I think that there's a lot more quality uh, and diversity in the books you're reading. There's stories about other things than superheroes, and that was the one way you get, like, uh, you know, like, Why the Last Man was a huge book, you know, and whether you like it or not. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and having stories like that in, in places like Vertigo and Oni and others who are escaping me. Uh, you know, they're doing all sorts of different things, and I love, image, especially image, of course, I love that there are books that you can give to people and recommend to people, 
that challenge all the expectations of what it is. This doesn't read a comic book. I don't like superheroes. This has, this is a story. It moves you like any movie or like any book you've ever read. And I think that when you want to talk about growing the whole base of everything and putting it in bookstores and having the collected editions, that's really important. And that's like one of the things that I think our video show we really concentrated on doing is just breaking down the stereotypes. And just like like Matt's book was. So I, I I liked your book for that reason exactly. I was like. And we were, we were just talking about like Andy Watson's book, and it's like uh, Breakfast Afternoon. It, it's such a like it's just a story about people, and it's so personal. And like you can do that in comics really well, and people don't know it. And so one of the things we like to do is to make sure that. And I love that trend. I think in mainstream comics, the move to other media has been huge, uh, especially DC doing the direct to DVD stuff. That they finally figured out that they should be making animated movies that aren't shit. Uh, how do you um, go about? recruiting new listeners for your podcast. So if someone's starting a podcast out there, how do you, how do you build an audience? That's a, that's a trick, isn't it? That's the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if, it's, if it's a brand new podcast, you want to build an audience, well, you, you get it on iTunes, you butter up to all the other podcasters out there, send them in promos, ask to be on their shows, or you know, just get on the forums and be friends with every other comic fan out there, and eventually they'll listen to your show. If you already have a show and you're trying to expand it, that's even harder because that's what we've all been trying to do for three years. And we've kind of, I think at this point, we've kind of maxed out on the potential audience of current comic fans who are big internet junkies who own iPods. I think that we're about where we can go with that without personally introducing ourselves to every single comic fan in the world and saying, by the way, you should listen to our podcast. We, when we started, there weren't as many choices. You know, so we were just lucky enough to be amongst the first, and there was only 50 or so podcasts when you went search on iTunes or comments. Now there's 150, 200 comic podcasts, so it's harder now to break through um, and get noticed. And people ask us that a lot, and what I tend to tell them is to try to be specific and specialized, because there are tons of general comic podcasts or the Hero Week Books podcasts, but if you can find a niche that's not being filled, um, then I mean, I think I think that's our challenge now. I mean, like what's been interesting in the past two, two, three years has been, you know, we all started doing podcasts and we, we were just we just showed up, and you know, and so I mean, I, while I agree and slightly disagree, Brian, that we've kind of hit the ceiling of you know, kind of talking piece of podcasts, whatever, is that I, I sit down and I look at the diamond charts and I see New Avengers sells one hundred thousand copies. And I sit down and I look at Apple's stock file that they delivered. They delivered, yes, yes, but they delivered 100,000 copies, so potentially 100,000 copies are out there. And I look at Apple's, you know, you know, stockpiling and how many iPods are sold and stuff like that. And if you ask me, like now, it's just like now we're just getting started. Now this, this now the work is going to start. And it's just a matter of you know looking for unique distribution channels, not depending on iTunes. Looking for ways to get in front of people, and you know the the, the viral thing, the, the tell your friends, all that kind of stuff. Because because you know for everybody who's in the know, the thousands of people who listen to podcasts. We, there's an, for me, I see an unlimited audience around. And you know, we used to say that that the dance floor was full. Well, now the dance floor is even more full. It's turned into a mosh pit. And so, how do you how do you how do you get more listeners? I don't know. I don't know. We're really lucky because we started when we did. If, to start around comics right now, I forget. Yeah, it, all the good URLs are taken too. So. <laughs> Uh, so, on behalf of WonderCon, I appreciate you all coming to attend the uh, podcasting extravaganza panel. But more than anything, I'd like to thank the podcasters for coming up here and sharing your experiences with all of We're back. So what I have now is an article that Logan gave me that was in the New Yorker, and it's written by Michael Chabon. And if you know him, he's a wonderful writer who has written the Cavalier and Clay books and has also just um, done a lot to 
I don't know, make comics more respectable? Maybe that's overstating the case. But he's certainly written a lot about comics and his love for them. This is an article that appeared in The New Yorker, and it's from March 10th of this year, 2008, and it's called Secret Skin, an Essay in Unitard Theory. And um, I read it today, and I realized maybe not a lot of people would take the time to read the whole thing. So I wanted to read it to you because I think it's really, first of all, really well written, and in my opinion, really funny. And also, I think he makes some very interesting points about superheroes. So this is really about superhero costumes more than anything else. And I just thought it was um, a very cool essay and that everybody deserved to hear it. So again, this is New Yorker, March 10th, 2008, an essay by Michael Chabon. Not my words, his words, but I'm going to try to do it some justice and read it for you so you can listen to what he's got to say. When I was a boy, I had a religious school teacher named Mr. Spector, whose job was to confront us with the peril we presented to ourselves. Jewish ethics was the name of the class. We must have been eight or nine. Mr. Spector used a workbook to guide the discussion. Every Sunday, we began by reading a kind of modern parable or cautionary tale, and then contended with a series of imponderable questions. One day, for example, we discussed the temptations of shoplifting. Another class was devoted to all the harm to oneself and to others that could be caused by the telling of lies. Mr. Spector was a gently acerbic young man with a black beard and blank ray eyes. He seemed to take our moral failings for granted and, perhaps as a result, favored lively argument over reproach or condemnation. I enjoyed our discussions while remaining perfectly aloof at my core from the issues they raised. I was at the time an awful liar and quite a few times had stolen chewing gum and baseball cards from the neighborhood Wawa. None of that seemed to have anything to do with Mr. Spector or the cases we studied in Jewish ethics. All nine-year-olds are sophists and hypocrites. I found it no more difficult than any other kid to withhold my own conduct from consideration in passing measured judgment on the human race. The one time I felt my soul to be in danger was the Sunday Mr. Spector raised the ethical problem of escapism, particularly as it was experienced in the form of comic books. That day, we started off with a fine story about a boy who loved Superman so much that he tied a red towel around his neck, climbed up to the roof of his house, and with a cry of, up, up, and away, leaped to his death. There was known to have been such a boy, Mr. Spector informed us, at least one verifiable boy, so enraptured and so betrayed by the false dream of Superman that it killed him. The explicit lesson of the story was that what was found between the covers of a comic book was fantasy, and fantasy meant pretty lies, the consumption of which failed to prepare you for what lay outside those covers. Fantasy rendered you unfit to face reality and its hard pavement. Fantasy betrayed you, and thus, by implication, your wishes, your dreams and longings, everything you carried around inside your head that only you and Superman and Elliot S. Magan, exclamation point and all, the principal Superman writer circa 1971, could understand. All these would betray you, too. There were ancillary arguments to be made as well about the culpability of those who produced such fare, sold it to minors, or permitted their children to bring it into the house. These arguments were mostly lost on me, a boy who consumed a dozen comic books a week, all of them cheerfully provided to him by his apparently iniquitous father. Sure, I might not be prepared for reality, point granted, but on the other hand, if I ever felt, found myself in the bottle city of Candor, under the bell jar in the Fortress of Solitude, I would know not to confuse Superman's Kryptonian double, Van Z, with Clark Kent's Voldon. Rather, what struck me, with the force of a blow, was recognition, a profound moral recognition of the implicit, indeed the secret, premise of the behavior of the boy on the roof. For that fool of a boy had not been doomed by the deceitful power of comic books, which, after all, were only bundles of paper, staples, and ink, and couldn't hurt anybody. That boy had been killed by the irresistible syllogism of Superman's cape. One knew, of course, that it was not the red cape any more than it was the boots, the tights, the trunks, or the trademark S that gave Superman the ability to fly. That ability derived from the effects of the rays of our yellow sun on Superman's alien anatomy, which had evolved under the red sun of Krypton. And yet, you only had to tie a towel around your shoulders to feel the strange vibratory pulse of flight stirring in the red sun of your heart. I, too, had climbed to a dangerous height, with my face to the breeze, and felt magically alone of my kind. I had imagined the streak of my passage like a red and blue smear on the window pane of vision. I had been Batman, too, and the mighty Thor. I had stood cloaked in the existential agonies of the vision, son of a robot and grandson of a lord of the ants. 
A few years after that Sunday in Mr. Spector's class, at the pinnacle of my career as a hero of the imagination, I briefly transformed myself, more about this later, into a super-powered warrior knight known as Aztec. And all that I needed to effect the change was to fasten a terrycloth beach towel around my neck. It was not about escape, I wanted to tell Mr. Spector, thus unwittingly plagiarizing in advance the well-known formula of a fictitious pioneer and theorist of superhero comics, Sam Clay. It was about transformation. The American comic book pre-existed the superhero, but just barely, and with so little distinction that in the cultural mind the medium has always seemed indistinguishable from its first stroke of brilliance. There were costumed crime fighters before Superman, the Phantom, Zorro, but only as there were pop quartets before the Beatles. Superman invented and exhausted his genre in a single bound. All the tropes, all the clichés and conventions, all the possibilities, all the longing and wishes and neuroses that have driven and fed and burdened the superhero comic during the past 70 years were implied by and contained within that little red rocket ship hurtling toward Earth. That moment... Krypton Exploding, Action Comics number 1, is generally seen to be minute zero of the superhero idea. About the reasons for the arrival of Superman at that zero moment, there is less agreement. In the theories of origin put forward by fans, critics, and other origin obsessives, the idea of Superman has been accounted the offspring or recapitulation in no particular order of Friedrich Nietzsche, of Philip Wiley in his novel Gladiator, of the strengths, frailties, and neuroses of his creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, of Cleveland, Ohio, of the aching wishfulness of the Great Depression, of the Jewish immigrant experience, of the mastermind stratagems of popular texts in their sinister quest for reader domination, of repressed Oedipal fantasies and homoerotic wishes, of fascism, of capitalism, of the production modes of mass culture, culture, and not in a good way, of celebrated strongmen and proponents of physical culture like Eugene Sandow, and of a host of literary not-quite-Superman precursors, chief among them Doc Savage. Most of these rationales are or of origin depend, to some extent, on history. They index the advent of Superman in mid-1938 to various intellectual, social, and economic trends of the Depression years, to the influence or aura of contemporary celebrities and authors, to the structure and demands of magazine publishing and distribution, etc., etc., to suit my purpose here, I might construct a similar ideology of the superhero costume, making due reference, say, to professional wrestling and circus attire of the earliest 20th century, to the boots, cloak, and tights ensembles worn by swashbucklers and cavaliers in stage play and Hollywood films, to contemporary men's athletic wear, with its unitard construction and belted trunks, to the designs of Alex Raymond and Hal Foster and the amazing pulp magazine cover artist Frank R. Paul. I could cite the influence of Art Deco and streamline modern aesthetics, with their roots in fantasies of power, speed, and flight, or posit the costume as a kind of fashion alter ego of the heavy, boxy profile of men's clothing at the time, when in fact the point of origin is not a date or a theory or a conjunction of cultural trends, but a story, the intersection of a wish and the tip of a pencil. Now the time has come to propose or confront a fundamental truth— like the being who wears it, the superhero costume is, by definition, an impossible object. It cannot exist. One may easily find suggestive evidence for this assertion at any large comic book convention by studying the spectacle of the brave and bold convention attendees, those members of the general comics fan public who show up in costume and go spazeering around the ballrooms and exhibition halls dressed as Wolverine, say, or the Joker's main squeeze, Harley Quinn. Without exception, even the most splendid of these get-ups is at best a disappointment. Every seam, every cobweb strand of duct tape gum, every laddered fishnet stocking or visible ridge of underpants elastic, every stray mark, pulled thread, speck of dust, acts to spoil what is instantly revealed to have been, all along, an illusion. The appearance of realism in a superhero costume made from real materials is generally recognized to be difficult to pull off, and many such costumes do not even bother to simulate the presumable effect on the eye and spirit of the beholder, where black bolt to stride, trailing a positronic lace of Kirby crackle, into a ballroom of the Overland Park Marriott. This disappointing air of saggy trouser seats, bunchy underarms, and wobbly shoulder veins may be the result of imaginative indolence, the sort that would permit a grown man to tell himself he will find gratification in walking the exhibition floor wearing a pair of dockers, a Jägermeister hoodie, and a rubber venom mask complete with punched-out eye holes and a flopping rubber bockwurst of a tongue. 
But realism is not, in fact, merely difficult. It is hopeless. A plausibly heroic physique is of no avail in this regard, nor is even the most fervent willingness to believe in oneself as the man or woman in the cape. Even those costumed conventioneers who go all out, working year-round to amass, scrounge, or counterfeit cleverly the materials required to put together, with glue gun, soldering iron, makeup, and needle and thread, a faithful and accurate black canary or ant-man costume, find themselves prey to forces implacable as gravity, of tawdriness, gimcrackery, and unwitting self-ridicule. And in the end, they look no more like Black Canary or Ant-Man than does the poor, poor schlub in a venom mask with a three-day pass hanging around his neck on a lanyard. This sad outcome, even in the wake of thousands of dollars spent and months of hard work given to sewing and to packing foam rubber into helmets, has an obvious and unavoidable explanation. A superhero's costume is constructed not of fabric, foam or rubber, or adamantium, but of halftone dots, pantone color values, inked containment lines, and all the cartoonist's sleight of hand. The superhero costume, as drawn, disdains the customary relationship in the fashion world between sketch and garment. It makes no suggestions. It has no agenda. Above all, it is not waiting to find fulfillment as cloth draped on a body. A constructed superhero costume is a replica with no original, a model built on a scale of X to 1. However accurate and detailed, such a work has the tidy airlessness of a model train layout, but none of the gravitas that such little rail yards and townscapes derive from making faithful reference to homely things. The graphic purity of the superhero costume means that the more money and effort you lavish on fine textiles, metal grommets, and leather trim, the deeper your costume will be sucked into the silly, silliness singularity that swallowed, for example, Joe Schumacher's Batman and Robin and their four nipples. In fact, the most reliable proof of the preposterousness of superhero attire wherever it is translated, as if by a Kugelmass device, from the pages of comics to the so-called real world, can be found in film and television adaptations of superhero characters. George Reeves' stodgy pajama-like affair in the old Superman TV series and Adam West's mod doll clothes in Batman have lately given way to purportedly more realistic versions in rubber, leather, and plastic, pseudo-utilitarian coveralls that draw inspiration in equal measure from spacesuits, cassuits, and scuba gear, from, one presumes, regard for the dignity of the actors who have seen the old George Reeves and Adam West shows and would not be caught dead in those glorified underoos. In its attempts to slip the confines of the panel page, the superhero costume betrays its non-existence, like one of those deep-sea creatures which evolves to th evolved to thrive in crushing darkness of the seabed, so that when you haul them up to the dazzling surface, they burst. One might go farther and argue that not only is the superhero costume has and needs no referent in the world of textiles and latex, but also that, even within its own proper comic book context, it can be said not to exist, not to want to exist, can be said to advertise, even revel in, its own notational status. This illusionary quality of the drawn costume can be readily seen if we attempt to delimit the elements of the superhero wardrobe to inventory its minimum or requisite components. We can start by throwing away our masks. Superman, arguably, arguably the first and greatest of all costumed heroes, has never bothered with one, nor have Captain Marvel, Luke Cage, Wonder Woman, Valkyrie, and Supergirl. All those individuals, like many of their peers, Hawkman, Giant Man, also go around bare-handed, which suggests that we can safely dispense with our gauntlet, what, gauntlets, whether finned, rolled, or worn with a jaunty slash at the cuff. Capes have been an object of scorn among discerning superheroes, at least since 1974, when Captain America, having abandoned his old career in protest over Watergate, briefly took on the nom de guerre Nomad, dressed himself in a piratical ensemble of midnight blue and gold, and brought his first exploit as a stateless hero to an inglorious end by tripping over his own flowing cloak. So, let's lose the cape. As for the boots, we are not married to the boots. After all, Iron Fist sports a pair of kung fu slippers, the spirit wears brown brogues, Zatanna works her magic in stiletto heels, and Beast, Kazar, and Mantis wear no shoes at all. Perhaps, though, we had better hold on to our unitards, crafted of some nameless but readily avail available fabric that, like a thin mat layer, at once coats and divulges the splendor of our musculature. Assemble the collective all-time memberships of the Justice League of America, the Justice Society of America, the Avengers, the Defenders, the Invaders, the X-Men, and the Legion of Superheroes, 
and let us not forget the legion of substitute heroes. And you will probably find that almost all of them, from Nighthawk to the Chlorophyll Kid, arrive wearing some version of the classic leotard tights ensemble. And yet, not everyone. Not Wonder Woman in her star-spangled hot pants and eagle bustier, nor the Incredible Hulk or Martian Manhunter or the Submariner. Consideration of the last leads us to cast a critical eye, finally, on our little swim trunks, typically worn with a belt, pioneered by Kit Walker for The Ghost Who Walks, the phantom of the old newspaper strip, and popularized by the super trendsetter of Metropolis. The Submariner wears nothing but a Euro-trashy green Speedo, suggesting that, at least by the decency standard of the old comics code, this minimal garment marks the zero degree of superhero attire. And yet, of course, the Flash, Green Lantern, and many others make do without trunks over their tights. The foregoing of trunks in favor of a continuous flow of fabric from legs to torso is frequently employed to lend a suggestion of speed, sleekness, a kind of uncluttered modernism. And the Hulk never goes around in anything but those tattered purple trousers. So we are left literally with nothing at all. The human form, unadorned, smooth, muscled, and ready, let's say, to sail the starry ocean of the cosmos on a deck of a gleaming surfboard. A naked spacefarer, sheathed in a silvery pseudoskin that affords all the protection one needs from radiation and cosmic dust, while meeting code standards by neatly neutering one, the shining void between the legs serving to signify that one is not, as one often appears to be when seen from, from behind, naked as an interstellar jaybird. Here is a central paradox of superhero attire. From panther black to lantern green, from the faintly Habsburg pont, pomp of 50s-era legion of superheroes costumes to the Mad Max space grunge of Lobo, from sexy fishnet to vibranium, for all the mad recombinant play of color, style, and materials that the superhero costume makes with its limited number of standard components, it ultimately takes its deepest meaning and serves its primary function in the depiction of the naked human form, unfettered, perfect, and free. The superheroic wardrobe resembles a wildly permutated alphabet of ideograms conceived only to express the eloquent power of silence. A public amnesia and avowed lack of history is the standard pretense of the costume superhero. From the point of view of the man or woman or child in the street, gaping up at the sky and skyscrapers, the appearance of a new hero over Metropolis or New York City or Astro City is always a matter of perfect astonishment. There have been no portents or warnings, and afterward one never learns anything new or gains any explanations. The story of a superhero's origin must be kept secret, occulted as rigorously from public knowledge as the alter ego, as if it were a source of shame. Superman conceals, archived in the Fortress of Solitude and accessible only to him, not only his own history, the facts and tokens of his birth and arrival on Earth, of his Smallville childhood, of his exploits and adventures, but the history of his Kryptonian family and, indeed, of his entire race. Batman similarly hides his story and its proofs in the trophy chambers of the Batcave. In theory, the costume forms part of the strategy of concealment. But in fact, the superhero's costume often functions as a kind of magic screen onto which the repressed narrative may be projected. No matter how well he or she hides its traces, the secret narrative of transformation, of rebirth, is given up by the costume. Sometimes this secret is betrayed through the illusion of style or form. Robin's gaudy uniform hints at the murder of his circus acrobat parents. Iron Man's at the flawed heart that requires a life support device, which is the primary function of his armor. More often, the secret narrative is hinted at with a kind of enigmatic, dreamlike obviousness right on the hero's chest or belt buckle, in the form of the requisite insignia. Superman's S, we have been told, only coincidentally stands for Superman. In fact, the emblem is the coat of arms of the ancient Kryptonian House of El, from which he descends. A stylized bat alludes to the animal whose chance flight through a window sealed Bruce Wayne's fate. A lightning bolt encapsulates the secret history of Captain Marvel. An eight-legged glyph immortalizes the bug whose bite doomed Peter Parker to his glorious and woebegone career. We say secret identity and adopt a a series of cloaking strategies to preserve it, but what we are actually trying to conceal is a narrative, not who we are, but the story of how we got that way, and by implication of all that we lacked and all that we were not before the spider bit us. Yet our costume conceals nothing reveals everything. It is our secret skin, exposed and exposing us for all the world to see. Superheroism is a kind of transvestism. 
Our super drag serves at once to obscure the exterior self that no longer defines us, while betraying, with half-unconscious panache, the truth of the story we carry in our hearts, the story of our transformation, of our story's recommencement, of our rebirth into the world of adventure, of the story itself. I became Aztec in the summer of 1973 in Columbia, Maryland, a planned suburban utopia halfway between Smallville and Metropolis. It happened one summer day as I was walking to the swimming pool with a friend. He wore a pair of midnight blue bathing trunks. My trunks were loud, with patches of pink, orange, gold, and brown, overprinted with abstract patterns that we took for Aztec, though they were probably Polynesian. In those days, a pair of bathing trunks did not in the least resemble the baggy board shorts that boys and men wear swimming today. Ours were made of stretchy polyester double-knit that came down the thigh just past the level of the crotch, and fashion fitted them with a sewn-on false belt of elastic webbing that buckled at the front with a metal clasp. They looked, in other words, just like the trunks favored by costumed heroes ever since the last son of Krypton came voguing down the super catwalk back in 1938. Around our throats, we knitted our beach towels. His was blue, mine a fine 1973 shade of burnt orange. Those enchanted cloaks whose power Mr. Specter had failed to understand or to recall from his own childhood. They fluttered out behind us, catching the breeze from our imagination, as Dark Lord and Aztec walked along. Dark Lord carried a sword and wore a Barbuda helmet with a flowing crusader cloak and an invulner invulnerable chainmail of lunar steel. Aztec wore tights and a feathered cloak and wielded a magic staff tipped with obsidian. We had begun the journey that day through the street-melting, shimmering green Maryland summer morning as a pair of lonely boys with nothing in common but that loneliness, which we shared with Superman and Batman, who shared it with each other, a fundamental loneliness and a wild aptitude for transformation. But with every step we became Dark Lord and Aztec, a little more surely, a little more irrevocably, transformed by the green lantern rays of fancy, by the spider bite of inspiration, by the story we were telling each other and ourselves about two costumed superheroes, about the new selves that had been revealed by our secret skin. Talking, retying the knots of our capes, flip-flops slapping against the soles of our feet, we transformed not only ourselves. In the space of that walk to the pool, we also transformed the world, shaping it into a place where such things were possible. The reincarnation of an Arthurian knight could find solace and partnership in the company of a latter-day Mesoamerican wizard. An entire world of superheroic adventure could be dreamed up by a couple of boys from Columbia or Cleveland. And the self you knew you contained, the story you knew you had inside you, might find its way like an emblem onto the spot right over your heart. All we needed to do was to accept the standing invitation that superhero comics extended to us by means of a towel. It was an invitation to enter the world of story, to join in the ongoing business of comic books, and, with the nodding of a magical beach towel, to begin to wear what we knew to be hidden inside us.
tell